Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, actually so unexpected. This is Friday afternoon, but it happens to me I'm home alone. My family's out of town, so I can do this. Uh, my good friend Rabbi Stephen Wall asked me to uh, if I would uh, do a bio of the Sephorno. It must have a reason. And I actually thought I did it before, but I looked it up and I didn't. And so I'll take this opportunity to uh, to do one, a very famous figure, about whom a lot is not known, or you know what I mean by that. Uh, I just want to say that this is being sponsored by Rabbi Weil and family. Uh, as he puts it in memory of his father, Rabbi Yeshua ben Yisachar Halevi, who fled the Nazis and rebuilt his family in the camel bi- cattle business, not the camel business, cattle business, the German Jews, the Rinder, the, 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 the cattle Jews, near Buffalo, New York, in which his family engaged uh, in Würzburg for centuries before the war. And that's what I mean. The Jews in that part of the world, many of them were in the cattle business, horses also, and things like that. They come from such a background. There were Yiddish, Yiddish, the dorps, the village Jews, and so forth. And, uh, and that's the story by itself. And so without any further ado, we'll talk about the Sephorno. First of all, it's not Sephorno. When I grew up, everybody, especially my Rebbeim, all said, the Sephorno said this and that and the other. There's a town in Italy called Sephorno. Our hero, Rabbi Avadio of Sephorno, means that his family came originally from Sephorno. There's two problems with that. First of all, the famous rabbi we're talking about today, Rabbi Avadio, the guy who wrote the, the, the Chumash commentary, uh, is not from Sephorno, uh, from Cesano, which is on the eastern side of Italy, if that means anything to you at all. So let's put it this way. It's like the opposite side from Rome and Florence. Uh, that's number one. And number two, well, let me say this. That doesn't mean anything. It's very common in Jewish history down till today that families may have originally to a certain place, but it has nothing to do with where they reside now. So, for example, I know people named Berlin, but they got they never lived in Berlin. I know Jews named London, Frankfurter, uh, Pariser, Kovner, Warsaw. You see what I'm saying? A lot of people have their names. Maybe way back when, sometimes somebody in the family originated there. They're not there for a long time. So, our hero is not from the town of Sforno, although that's the origin of the name. I simply say that because it's not Siporno, like it's our... Our story, the Rebbe from Sephorno. The problem with that is, nobody knows where Sephorno is. It's one of these little places that must have <clears throat> disappeared. I googled it a little while ago, see, where it is these days. I thought it's not there. All you get is pizza shops. I'm serious. So, what that means is that it's a small little nothing that got absorbed into a, a slightly bigger nothing. Very similar to the Rivet who lived in Pascares, which doesn't exist anymore, because it's been absorbed into some nearby town. And so, if you want to know where Sforno is, it'll, it's probably a, used to be a neighborhood, you know, on its own, and then got absorbed by something else. But we're dealing with somebody who's an Italian Jew, uh, that's clear, and who lived in the Renaissance. 
Mamish in the Renaissance, uh, late 1400s and early 1500s. The usual dates are something around the line, 1470, 1550. It's something like that. We don't have anything hard and fast. And as a matter of fact, when it comes to Sparno, there's a lot of things we don't have hard and fast. Right? When it comes to Sparno, there are a lot of things we don't have hard and fast. Uh, that's the nature of the game. Here we have an Italian rabbi of the exact sort that we've talked about before, who uh, was what I would call part of the Italian Haskalah. Of course, that has nothing to do with the modern term Haskalah, but rather like you had one version in Spain and another one in Italy. It was very from. But Haskalah means it's not only Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. <coughs> Moreover, our hero came from a little town, Cezina. Like I say, not far from the from the Adriatic. And there's no yeshiva there or anything like that. Italy in general during that period. Tiny, tiny communities. Wouldn't surprise me if he, if he grew up in a town with 10, 15 families. Jewish. Surrounded all by all these Goyim, Italian Catholics, who are pretty doggone anti-Semitic. Let me say that. They're pretty anti-Semitic. The Jews, whenever they survived, particularly in that period, and a lot of historians have written on this period, the Renaissance, the Jews were allowed in by the local authorities so that they would set up the kind of business that no Christian merchant wanted to go into, and that was your nickel and dime loans. They call it banking, but it's not what we would call today banking. I saw an Italian biography once of the Sforno, Banchieri Exigeti, a banker and a exegete, you know, Bible mafarsh. Banker means he had a loan shop, you get it? And what it means is that the Italian Jews were the ones who were assigned the job of running a business on nickel and dimes, small loans. You see, your big guys, like the Medici, they deal with government loans, rich people. So if I'm doing a, a, a job involving millions, my cut... Is a, is a nice cut. If I'm dealing day to day with this guy who needs a little loan to see him over, or that one needs help but to, to, you know, to pay the mortgage, and this guy who got himself into a little bit of a debt here until he can get himself out, and all that, it's nickel and dimes. So you need unbelievable volume to make any money. It usually didn't happen that way. So no guy wanted to go into that. They would say the Jews should take it over. That became a Jewish business. And where he lived in central and northern Italy, uh, where the Sforno lived all of his life was in a place called the Papal States. That I, excuse me, I've spoken about a number of times, which of course no longer exists. And that was the territory owned by the Pope. In other words, Italy, I don't know how to do this in such a way to show pictures. Maybe one day I'll figure that out. But Italy at that time, just take the trouble to Google it. <clears throat> Say Italy in, in 1494, I think is a nice map. And it was a bunch of different countries on the Italian peninsula. So the bottom part was always called the Kingdom of Naples, but the middle part, like a belt, running through from one side of Italy to the other, in other words, from the Mediterranean, shall we say, to the Adriatic, was ruled by the Pope of the Kingdom. So the Pope always had two positions, two hats. Number one, he was the religious head of the Roman Catholic Church and still is. Separate from that, he was a king of a country, <clears throat> but he didn't call himself the king. He's the pope, and he ruled the papal states. And that's Middle Italy, Central Italy. 
And our hero lived all the time there, because I can tell you he's basically associated with three places. Where he was born, Cesena, then he goes to Rome, then eventually ends up in Bologna. 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 And all those are part of the Papal States. So, he's Italian, Italian, Italian. He's not Ashkenazi, not Sephard. He's Italiani. Now, what's really interesting is, these guys live in very small communities. How do they keep themselves Jewish? How do they keep themselves from? Aside from the fact they're very small in number and very hated, but on the other hand, everybody needs to use them because you have small loans. Raise your hand if you've never taken a mortgage or something like that. You know, it's ridiculous. Of course you have. So life is so constituted that from time to time, people need, need to borrow. The trick is not to get in over your head, not to get in too deep. And as I said, <clears throat> there were no loan associations or banks that would lend you money. Not from the Goyim. That's where the Jews stepped in. And so a family like his, Italian Jews, they would be make a deal with, let's say, this little town of Cesano or another one. And they'd say, 10 of you can move in. And in return, you have to pay so and so many taxes all year, every year. And what you have to do is set up a loan business uh, in which you're allowed to charge this and this much percent interest and so and such and such. And that's how they survived. Naturally, they're hated. Everybody hates the person that lends them money because then you owe him the money. Uh, and a lot of priests, uh, rabble-rousers, used to travel through central and northern Italy during this time, heating up the mob because it was always very offensive to the Catholic sensibilities. And rightly so, that why can't we raise our own money and do it ourselves? And why can't we have free loan associations, what's called Monte de Pieta, a current, a fund of piety, which you make, what you and I refer to as a gamach, as a gamach. You see, why can't we make successful gamach? But they couldn't. And every once in a while they tried it and it failed. And so they always had to pull, bring the Jews back in. That means the Jews are always hated, but they had what the historians call their vertical alliances. I know everybody around me hates, but as long as I get along with and kiss up to the duke, the prince, the count, the nobleman, the pope, whoever's the guy, top dog, He'll protect me against everybody else. It's a lousy way to live. That is the life that our hero lived from A to Z. And that's why he's always, he has two faces, as I'll talk about in a second. One cloppy chutz and one cloppy penin. One how he acts with his um, Christian interlocutors. And one's what he really thinks of them. As a Jew in Gullis. Now, here's another interesting <coughs> aspect. If they have these small towns, how does somebody become learned? A Talmud Chacham. There were, in his time especially, <clears throat> a number of towns in northern Italy where they had important yeshivas. It's just interesting. The Jews were a very small number, but they somehow rolled away, you know, put the money together, and you would have a yeshiva. I mean, 50 guys, 70, 80 guys, that's a lot by Italy. Okay? I don't know the exact number, but it's something like that. Mantua was a very famous place. Padua, I've spoken about before. That yeshiva is very important. Some other Bologna believer enough for a while. Uh, they had these. As far as we know, our hero did not do any of those. Best as I can uh, make out, the following thing happened, and it wasn't so rare in Italy. <clears throat> it wasn't common, it wasn't rare. Now, I'll give you an example from American... Uh, Reality. Suppose I lived 
I don't know, in Nevada, Nebraska, one of these places, weren't a lot of Jewish communities. Right? I live in a small town. Uh, how am I going to, and, it's, and let's say it's years ago, now you can do anything online. Right? I could live in Cucamonga and access the whole Shas and it's 10 million shiurim online. As you're doing at this moment. Um, but that's now. What about long ago? So, a boy would go off to yeshiva somewhere. If he was very lucky, maybe they would have something like that in his town or in proximity. But there are a lot of boys that didn't have that. And so, as I said before, I'm the proverbial boy in 1920, place in the middle of uh, Nebraska, you know, Kansas, something like that. Well, there might be a small Jewish community where I live, but how am I going to learn anything? Suppose, 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 I was to say that as a boy, I was just very interested in, in Jewish things, and even though I go to public school, I hooked up with my local rabbi, or chazan or shochet or something like that. Let's just say, and because I myself was personally interested, every day I made a business to learn with him for two, three hours. Starting with Chumash, taking you the way through, eventually to Mishnahis, and eventually to Gemara, and possibly even beyond that. So you see, I didn't go to YU. I didn't go to a no formal yeshiva at that time. Uh, I didn't live in New York City or Chicago. Um, and nevertheless, I could become quite learned because I hooked up with this local rabbi who happened to be a Talmud Chacham, and he was very sound in how he taught me. That's the Sephardna. He lived in a little town. Not much going on here. He emerges as a significant scholar. I mean, a Talmud Chacham and Gemara and all the rest of it. Obviously, he must have met somebody. That's what it says to me. Locally, who was learned, and because he was naturally, A, gifted, and B, interested in, in, in Yiddishkeit, so he took off in terms of knowledge. And that's how you had a situation where this foreigner was a big rabbi, and he will emerge as one of the biggest rabbis in Italy in the 1500s, and that's saying a lot. But whenever you look in a bio of the Oh, what do you call it? Oh, the Sforno, they always always mention in the Shalos and Shubas of Maran Padua and this and that and the other. He was a player. How did he become a player? He never went to Yeshiva. You see, it's, it's, it's very interesting. That's number one. Number two, and this is very Italian, at the same time that he obviously learned up a storm with some rabbi or something like that to become a Talmud Chacham, it's also clear <clears throat> that he must have had tutors, as many Italian Jews did, in Limudichol. Okay? And eventually be a doctor, an MD. So again, that's just very interesting. Because says you know, there's no big center of Italian uh, you know, university life or anything like that. It's a small, it's a heck village. But it doesn't matter. All you need is one learned guy who's willing to teach you, show you the books, and if you have the zitzflesh, they say, and, you have, and you're self-motivated, self-generated, you can do a velt. And so, that's what happened to our hero. From this little town, he voxed ice, as they would say today, and he excelled in Limudikosh Limudikol. I would also go on to say that being Italian, there was a Haskalah always at that time, and by that I mean that the Italian Jews, the firmest of them even, made sure that their education, their Jewish education, included uh, uh, Tanakh, uh, Diktuk, Ivrit, things like that even some of the medieval philosophy books, not at the expense of their frumkite. 
That's what makes the Italian Haskalah so interesting. So, our hero, therefore, emerges by the time he's 20, 25, something like that. A, he knows Shas pretty well, which is impressive in that era, in any era. B, he uh, has a very good secular education, and he's on the road to uh, doing the MCATs, and eventually getting his uh, his doctorate in um, in Ferrara, University of Ferrara. Uh, even though I don't know how the heck he, what he was doing in Ferrara, which is north of where he is, not so far away, they never mentioned this in any of his biographies. But I remember that the number one modern historian of Italian Jewry during this period was Professor Robert Bonfield, Ruben Bonfield, Hebrew U. I mean, he's close to 90 now. He's Italian. Uh, he taught in Hebrew. He published a very significant book. I mean, a bunch. Uh, one is called, uh, here you go, uh, Rabbis in Jewish Communities in Renaissance Italy. It's a very big classic if you're one of the egghead historians. You know, if you're interested in this sort of thing. And for those of you that are watching this on the YouTube, check this out. Here is... Uh, one second. Here you go. Here is the Latin uh, diploma of Sforno <laughs> from the University of Ferrara. Isn't that interesting? It's all in Latin and it says, Damn you Jews, you're too uh, blind to see the truth. But nevertheless, you have, you know, uh, uh, mastered the courses and you... Servadio, they don't call him Avadio because Avadio means servant of God. So in Italian, you call Servadio. Since you've got, you know, you passed the courses, we're giving you an MD. So he did get his uh, MD. Therefore, he had a business, to, uh, a profession to practice. And he had smicha. I don't know where, though. But nevertheless, you see, he was a major player. And I'll show you later. They have some shalos and shubas that survived from him. But he didn't have the luck to assemble and put together his shubas, although I'm sure he had many. And therefore, most of them are lost. He had a peculiar mazel, as you and I know, that his chumash commentary took off. You never know what happens with somebody. They can write 20 chiburim, 20 books, let's say, and 19 to go into oblivion. And one shoots to the top. I mean, uh, I wish it was true of you and I. You know, everybody wants to get one that would hit the top. So there's no question, obviously, that the Sephardim, in terms of his commentary in the Chumash, hit the top. But not his other stuff. But I want you to know, and he was a big Talmud Chacham, and he had his smicha. Now, he moved to Rome. Right? He moved to Rome. Hold on for a second. I hope I can splice this. Anyhow, I'm working my way through the technology over here. Uh, anyway, he went to Rome. This would be in the 1490s. And he stayed there for a long time. So he's Italian Jew. Rome is not Sparta. It's not Ashkenazim. It's Italiani. Now, that means he's there in the belly button of the Renaissance. And I would say he's about 30 years in Rome until the 1520s, which was a good time to get out of there. The period he's in Rome, in Italian history and in Jewish history, very interesting, because this is the time... When I would say, in relative terms, he had the good popes. They weren't so religious. I mean, they're religious in their way. 
But this is the Borgia was it when he came there, uh, Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, was around. And then after him, of course, came Julius II, the guy from the Michelangelo story. And after him, of course, came uh, Leo X, the Medici. <clears throat> and then Clement VII, who was the Medici. These guys, if you know anything at all on the subject, I'm sure you're not too much bucky on the history of the popes. Vis-a-vis the Jews, <clears throat> they were as good as it got. Later on, it got worse. Okay? Um, some of these guys were too busy fighting wars, playing around with their girlfriends, all that kind of stuff. It was supporting Renaissance art. It made them more broad-minded and less interested in beating up on Jews. That's when the uh, Sephora lived in Rome. Now, everybody knows, and it's a major part of his biography, that when he was in Rome, uh, I guess working on his medical degree, because he got his medical degree in 1501. So that would be, depending on when he was born exactly, it's all such a machlokas, some say 1460, some say 1475, something's 1470, but we have an exact date on the, on that diploma I just showed you. So he got it when, at the age of uh, 30, 31, which is not hard to hear. So imagine the guy's in Rome, um, clearly working on his uh, MD. Now, why isn't he up in Ferrara? I don't know, they, they used to have different systems of how they prepare for medicine than they have today. Uh, I strongly suspect that he was on hands-on you know what I mean? Notice he was doing the equivalent of what you and I today would call residency, even though it was out of order. <clears throat> That's number one. He also was a Talmud Chacham. And so he'll be on the basin in Rome, that sort of thing. You know, a dying, whatever. And uh, he needed Parnosa. Now, a major story of this porno is it was never good with money. It's surprising. If he finally got a doctor... MD, that ought to be a good living. And maybe brought in a lot of money. I don't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened. All we know is he's always writing letters complaining about his poverty. There's a thousand possible reasons it could happen. In addition to that, he also was running one of these loan bank things, you know, with nickel and dime loans. I only know that because there's a famous uh, article about him by this Italian historian about, you know, Savadio Saforno, uh, what was it again? Banchiere et exegite. The Jewish banker and exegete. Exegete is a farce. Well, he wasn't a banker like you're talking about, you know, uh, <laughs> Chase Manhattan. It means he's doing these loan chop things, these pawnbroker type things. Obviously, he wasn't good in business. That's what it says to me. And he wasn't good in money. If the guy was a doctor and he couldn't make a living, that tells you something. It's very possible they spent time in learning, but not really, because I saw Cecil Roth and others, based on reputation, said that he had a good reputation as a doctor. So to me, he should have made a living. And he was married, he had children, and so forth. So I don't know what the reason is. He had a brother, an older brother, who was good in money. I think the older brother was a businessman, maybe he was also a doctor or something. And all throughout his life, the older brother was Stuppingham Gelt, which is an embarrassing situation. On the other hand, they did love each other, and they had a good relationship. But it's really funny because around the age of 50 or something like that, the brother said like this, give it up, man, move with me, move to where I live in Bologna, and I'll 
take care of the Parnosa end. You know, so it's basically a uh, an admission, at least to me, that you're never going to make it financially. Get it? So just move over here, uh, and that's what he did in the last years of his life, last thirty years of his life. I'm rich. I'll bankroll you. I know you're the real thing. I know you're a tremendous Talmud and so on and so forth. You can even have your medical practice on the side. Maybe I'll bring in a few bucks. And you can set up a yeshiva. And the brother bankrolled the yeshiva. So we're basically talking about a guy. His brother's name was Hananel. Talking about a situation in which the brother said, my brother's a scholar, Talmud Chacham, all the rest of it. He's not a waster of time. He's not a phony baloney. But money ain't going to be his forte. I'll cover it. But earlier in the years, he spent, as they say, about 30 years or so, something like that, in Rome. And uh, it doesn't seem that he was happy because the Roman community was always very cutthroat. Italian Jewry is notorious for quarrels and things like that. I'm not saying other Jewish communities aren't notorious for it, but the Italian Jewish communities have this quality that historians know that small communities of 5, 10, 20, 30 families as big machlekesen. Who are you fighting? There's nobody there. You understand? These very contentious divorce cases and arguments over Choshe Mishpat, my goodness. You know, it was like crazy. That's why, by the way, I did the other thing in the podcast. Look at this forno on this week's Parsha, Baloscha. Shuva Yisrael, Venucha Yomar, Shuva Yisrael, Riva Salfa Yisrael. Shuva Riva Salfa Yisrael. Stop the quarrels, the revavos. Stop the fights from the word Riv of the Alpha Yisrael. <laughs> you see? Um, the Hashkit, he says, you know, quiet it down. Uh, so even though he's an important figure in the community, because he was a Talmud Chacham, and he did get his MD in 1501, but, I don't know. Well, it doesn't seem to be so happy there. Now, every historian takes the trouble to point out that while he was in his studying for the MCATs, you know, and for and for his uh, to get his degree, which he got up, up north in Ferrara, so while he was doing that, um, he met a bunch of Goyim, uh, Renaissance intellectuals. The Italian Renaissance, I can't summarize in two, three words, other than to say the following. I will summarize it. It's the beginning of the modernity. The Middle Ages is defined in Christianity in a way that all culture was subsumed within from Christianity. Get it? All culture was subsumed. So, once upon a time, like, for example, if you live at the time of Rashi in France, which was Christian and Catholic, there was nothing to do if you're not Christian in terms of intellectuality. There were no math books, no science books, no novels, no plays. It's boring. Unless you happen to like the New Testament, the lives of the saints, Catholic canon law, Catholic mysticism, the monasteries, all the rest of it, which is very impressive for a Catholic. I'm, I'm serious. I'm not taking away from that. But if you're Jewish, like Rashi, it's boring. And therefore, the Ashkenazi Jews, as I've said many times, built this insular tradition of turning inward. That's a fact. Now, um, when you get to time of our hero, so the Renaissance means that within the Catholic world, in the 1400s, late 1300s, there started to be a very slight opening in which they said, well, it's not only the New Testament 
that you can be eyeing in. Uh, the Greek and the Roman stuff from long ago, that's also a legitimate area of intellectual inquiry. After all, they said, nobody's going to go and become a worshiper of Apollo or Zeus or something like that anymore. So it's safe. And consequently, there was a revival of interest in the classics, what we call the Greeks and the Romans. Books started to be translated, uh, reread. Art started to imitate the classics in their way, you know, with great themes from Roman and Greek history, also from the Bible, too. And Kazeva Kazet. Now, the significance of this is that it cracked the total monopoly of the Catholic Church and all culture. From now on, there's a little bit of secularity involved. So it's 99% Christian, like I'm doing now with my hands. But a little bit, a little bit like that, is open for the secular. That's when our hero lived. Now, one manifestation of what I just said was <clears throat> the interest in, in the Greeks and the Romans. Which meant that now people, uh, by the time you get to the Sforno, great intellectuals in Europe wanted to learn Latin and Greek properly so they could read the old books. In the Middle Ages, there was no Greek, and the Latin was a called church Latin, so it was pretty schwach. People now say, let's go back and get a more puristic understanding of the Latin language and therefore the Latin books, and same thing for the Greeks. Hey, then somebody said, what about Hebrew? After all, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And although the uh, church and the Goyim were very, very anti-Semitic on a whole bunch of levels, there did develop among some this interest in understanding Hebrew as one of the classical languages. Now, it wasn't easy because the Europeans didn't know Hebrew well. The Bible they knew from the Latin translation called the Vulgate, which goes back to Jerome in the 300s, who was not Jewish. Everybody knew from day one that the Vulgate has many mistakes. That's a double yitua. Those even the guy knew that. But they never changed it. And over time, it got a certain sacred status. Now, people say, let's go back to the originals. This is what we call humanism. Get it? The humanists. So one of the people was completely a Catholic, a guy. And a famous figure in, in Germany was Johann Reuchlin, Reuchlin, who was not a priest, but an intellectual and a sincere Catholic. And he got interested in Greek and in um, Hebrew. And he wanted to teach us at the university level. And he did. And he said, you know, we have to get rid of the medieval stuff and start to understand the old world out of which our values come on its own terms, which involved understanding Hebrew. Now, if he's a German guy at that time, late 1400s, how are you going to pick up Hebrew? The answer is that the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany, <clears throat> Maximilian, one of the Habsburgs, who was a real super Catholic guy and a Renaissance prince, if there ever was one, naturally had a Jewish doctor. And his doctor was Talmud Chacham, Yemichil Loans. And he was with the emperor all the time as his personal physician. Personal physician means he recommends the diet, exercise, lifestyle changes, and all that kind of stuff. You can imagine what a, what a beer swiller, beer guzzler Maximilian was. So this Johann Reuchlin met this guy, 
who was a rabbi, but also an MD, and he taught him a little bit of Hebrew. And then Reichlin became an ambassador. It's a long story. One of the German princes, the, elect, uh, the Count Palatine, near Bavaria, and he accompanied him for two or three years in Rome. When he was in Rome, he said, you got the Vatican Library even at that time, and things like that, so I can understand, I can learn the Greek better and the Latin much better. And he asked around, how can I pick up Hebrew better? So one of the famous cardinals of the, uh, of, uh, the Renaissance, uh, was it wasn't Marino uh, Grimani, it was the other one. Aldo Grimani, I think. Uh, he said, I know this Jewish guy I met. Uh, his name is Vadio Sforno, Servadio Sforno. He's studying for his uh, medical degree. He's very learned. And he's a very down-to-earth and nice guy. In other words, he would be a good teacher. He's a straight-up guy. So in other words, the guy, this cardinal, gave a uh, seal of approval to our hero, and Reichland learned with him for two or three years. No, he paid him. So basically, I'm going to medical school, but I'm learning some, earning some money on the side by tutoring a guy, in this case a German intellectual, young guy, in Hebrew language, using the Radak, I'm sure that when he talked in his classes, I know, I mean, I've done the same thing, you end up deviating, not just the, you know, Shvanah, Shvanah, and all that, you end up talking about life in general, Jewish religion, the position of the Jewish religion. Now, one of the things of our hero, which is going to be so uh, prof prof uh, noticeable in his Chumash commentary, is his Svaradik, uh, Seicheldik, down-to-earth and straightforward approach to Yiddishkeit in general and to all matters of Torah. You know, saying everybody knows this Forno is not Kabbalistic, it's not super philosophical in the Maimonidean way, is a down-to-earth common sense very from, informed by high ideas and all the rest of it. He's not an Aristotelian exactly. He wrote a book against Aristotelianism. It's very much more of the pragmatic type. And they hit it off very well. And uh, Reichland later on returned to Germany. <clears throat> and a number of years later, now he didn't like Jews, but he liked our hero. You know what I'm saying? Probably was ripped off by somebody. This guy is a straight up guy. So the Sforno made a Kiddush Hashem. It's a good thing he met him and not somebody else. He knew how to deal with people who are not Jewish in the best possible way. And Reichland later on played a very famous role in Western intellectual history because, about 10 years later, because a Meshumid, a notorious Meshumid, his name was Pfefferkorn, <laughs> believe it or not, Pfefferkorn, Johannes Pfefferkorn. Uh, now he was a convert to Christianity from Judaism. The story is the Jews were going to punish him for something. He said, the heck with that. Bazin not going to lay a finger on me. I'm going to convert. And he said that the reason the Jews don't convert, like I do on mass, is uh, several reasons. And one of them is they have all these Jewish books. So it gives them too rich of a culture. If you burn and destroy all the books, they'll be up the creek. And he was not wrong about that. Imagine... If you took away all the books, and imagine there was no internet, like a hundred years ago, and, and you burned all the Gomorrahs, and things like that, which later they did in Italy. You could have Lakewood, you have Punavish, there's no books. What are they going to do all day? So this guy, uh, Fevrico, was a real momster. He was straight on point. And he wanted to get the emperor, Maximilian, 
to agree to burn all the Gemaras and all the Hebrew books and stuff like that, other than the Old Testament. And this guy, Reichler, defended it. He said that would be a crime against uh, humanity, against humanism, against uh, culture. And anyway, he said, you know, the Talmud is exactly like the story in the Gemara. You know, there's a few points here and there that are a little weird, a little anti-Christian, but Ruba de Ruba is fine. And the Jews themselves don't believe all that stuff. You know, Zagatatas, whatever. So, let it be. And there was a whole story back and forth because he got in big fights with the Dominican monks. Now it's not the time to go into that. Reuchlin. And many people have always made the point, although we can't prove it, that because he was two, three years a student of the Sorno, so therefore uh, this predisposed them to have a better, uh, what's the right word, attitude towards Jews than most of these early Christians from this time who had a, a, a savage attitude. I might say, it's very interesting, that Reuchlin stayed a Catholic all of his life. But he was a friend of Martin Luther who started the Protestants. And Reuchlin's uh, nephew, I think, was Melanchthon, who was the only, who was a Talmud Mubbuk of Martin Luther. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but whatever. And uh, he was the only early Protestant to say anything at all positive about the Jews. He tried to stop a blood libel once and all that. So, you see, this. let me put it this way. We all know, and Rabbi Wow better than anyone, you have to know how to behave around all kinds of audiences and leave them with a positive Rosham and a dignified Rosham rather than leading, leaving them with Chil Hashem. And it has good spill-offs, you know what I mean? It has good results, and that's what happened with our hero. Now, uh, during this time... He spent in Rome, as I said, so was uh, Alexander VI, the emperor, I mean, the pope, and then Julius, the guy who built the Sistine Chapel, and then was Leo, who was the big patron of the arts, and there was Clement, who was another Medici. These guys basically left the Jews more or less alone. They even allowed the Sparta Jews, some of them, running away from the Inquisition of Spain to come and settle in Rome, based on the principle of don't ask, don't tell. So, if this Forno, Avadi of Sforno, was living in Rome during this time, there wasn't a ghetto, Gitzukanetza. I'm sure he had non Jewish clients and Jewish clients. You know, you can make a go of it. Although, as I said before, he wasn't good in money. But in the 1520s, things went downhill. And again, without boring you with all the details, in the middle of the 1520s, the European. Uh, politics got unbelievably complicated with the new Emperor Charles V versus Francis I of France and the Pope trying to uh, uh, maneuver with, in between them. And to make a long story short, Rome itself was burned down to the ground pretty much and sacked by an imperial army, by a Catholic army that was angry at the Pope for backing the French. I hope I haven't confused you. And so our hero was one of those people who got out of there. And I'm not 100% sure now. I've seen all kind of things from his letters, whatever. He traveled around. But he ends up in Bologna for too long. And he had to because he couldn't control the money. He wasn't good with money, as I said before. At least that's what it seems. And by his brother, he was okay. And so, he uh, settled in Bologna, which is uh, north of Rome. You know, it's a, it was the northernmost part of the Papal States. 
very hush of a community and a place of a leading university where Jesus were allowed to go. So it wasn't only Padua, it was Bologna too, although the whole thing's going to close down after the death of the Sparno because the Pope went crazy and destroyed all the Jewish stuff. But I'm talking about during his lifetime. So for those who are historians in the 1520s, 30s, 40s, he's supposed to have died around 1550, okay? So these are the years, as I said before, when Italy was going through um, intellectual changes, and it was also going through political changes in terms of constant invasions. And many, many wars were fought in Italian soil. So to be Jewish at that time was basically you had to learn how to ride the tidal waves, you know. Always, like Rabbi Kiva said, always stick your head down in the right time, not be destroyed by the waves. This is when he composed uh, his uh, commentaries. Uh, it's very interesting that the Sforno uh, was giving shiurim in a yeshiva. He set up a yeshiva based madrish in um, Bologna. I looked online. I never was in Bologna. I've been in many Italian cities, but not there. And it's quite astonishing. If you take, if you care, you'll look at, you'll look at yourself. Look up Casa Saforno. Casa means bias. And in Bologna, you can still see the house where he was living. I had this experience in Ferrara. We took a group picture, I have here somewhere, in front of the house of uh, the Pachadietzo, Gitzik Lampronti. But he lived in the 1700s. This, our hero today lives in the 1500s in Bologna. And basically, his brother-in-law bankrolled him. And that way he could do what he wanted to do, which is give shiurim. He also practiced as a doctor. And he started his uh, literary activity. Um, maybe start a little bit earlier. During his lifetime, he was a big intellectual, not only in Jewish stuff. And he was interested, let me put it this way, the Italian Jews, the intellectuals among them, were inf in influenced to some degree or another by the new ideas that are spreading out there, the humanism, as they said, for the interest in the Greek and the Latin, the questioning of medieval uh, systems of thought like Aristotelianism. I don't get too uh, technical for everybody here. And the Sforna was a player in all that. The only thing is, and he wrote, or Lamim, he has treatises in this. It's boring. Nobody today would be interested in this kind of stuff. At the time he wrote, he sent it as a gift to King Henry of France, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing that will be interested uh, you you'll find interesting. Uh, if you are interested in it, however, I want to say this before I proceed. The main thing that the Sephora wrote, as you and I know, was his commentary in the Chumash, which was published 10, 15 years after his death. He died 1550, I think it was published in 1567. And it took off. Uh, his other writings on parts of the Tanakh, on Perkyavis, on Tehillim, uh, on Eov, parts of Eov, and take off. And one of his books, Orla Amin, where he gets involved with the questions of Aristotelianism, which really was more Nogea to the Rambam and the fights he had in the time of the Murnavukim in the 12th century than. Italy, I guess, in his time. Well, maybe not. There was still a lot of old scholastics around, and scholastic ideas were intermingled with the new other ideas. Well, I won't bore you with that. Uh, 
If you're interested in that, then know that the Mother of Cook in the late 70s, they're the ones who put out originally this. The beer is Forno al Torah. Now, is this a good edition of this Forno? As you see in the old fashioned Mother of Cook style, with the footnotes and different gears. Because this Forno himself had several Kisveyad. He's tried the first time, and then he rewrote it later on, years later. I mean, which makes sense. You know, he's always rethinking the Psukim like I do. I'm not comparing, you know, every year you'll see Parsha from a different angle. And here's the different gears and all the rest of it. However, uh, then the, they did something perhaps even more important, and that is they have something called Kisvei Forno. You see this here? Kisvei Evadius Forno. And that's where they have these other treatises, if you're interested in. For example, here's the Oramim. You understand? We're guessing all these kind of questions. Shlemus Hanefesh, Ima Shlemus Hasheni, Asichlis, Yusuf Bekoach Tivi. These kind of metaphysical questions that are completely boring to us today. Unbelievably boring to us today, in my opinion. Chakiras im seder hefsed v'ayven kadmon im hayesodus kadmonim im achomer rishon kadmon. We're not the achomer rishon today and all this kind of stuff. This is not the talk of the modern era. Uh, and here's this little stuff on Pirkei or whatever. So the things, if he simply would have wrote those, he'd be a footnote in some egghead articles about Italian Jewish rabbis who were also intellectuals, there are plenty of those. However, you and I know that he was very interested in uh, Chumash. He wrote it clearly for the average guy, not for the super eggheads. No, this is not written in the philosophical sense or anything like that. His great kayak over here was to put stuff over, as I say, straight. Uh, glot, uh, Svaradik, Seichel, and to approach the Chumash in a fresh way, and to try to find out the meaning and give explanations of everything you find in the Chumash. He worked on it, he reworked on it, he died, and then, I guess his relatives published it, and it started to have a life of its own. Why? There are many reasons. One of them is, as somewhat a secular education and an Italian Haskal education, married to his being a Talmud Chacham, he knew how to write very well because you learned rhetoric and writing and logic in your secular education. And he had the Torah knowledge to back it up. And he was a very sincere and firm guy. And he knew that average Balabatan in the Shoals have issues you know, understanding this story, that story. And just to give him the Rashi way or the Ramban way was eh for some, for many. And he wanted to put it over in a way that would be common sense and Sephardic, especially people in his generation. And because he gave a great deal of thought of how to structure it, how to present it, and how to write it, and write succinctly, it had high quality. And again, Ivrit is great because he's a Italian, so he knows Ivrit very well. When you combine all these together, so you have something that was Matzachem Be'ene Harbe Be'ne Adam. And although it originally was printed once or twice, you know, in his time and afterwards, 
eventually took off. And they say, at least that's what I've heard, that the Nitziv was in love with it, and he was influential in getting included in the Mikras Gadolas. Because not many things are in the Mikras Gadolas. By that I mean the original Mikras Gadolas, which was published in his lifetime in Venice. He's a contemporary of Italian Jewish printing. He set up a Jewish printing press in Bologna. Uh, again, he didn't have the money for that. His brother bankrolled it. But in other words, he wanted to publish Sfarim, Lahagdal to Lahadr, to spread Jewish knowledge among his uh, fellow Jews, who, of course, he saw be spending all day long in those nickel and dime loan shops. They don't know much. And he wanted, in the best way possible, to spread Yiddishkeit and knowledge of that sort of thing. Therefore, he's a player in what we call the making of Hebrew books in Italy, as you see in this title, um, in the 1500s. So, it's ironic, but it's sad, because not long after he died, the Pope burned all the books. But I'm just saying, during his lifetime. And having these concerns and these abilities, uh, it got very popular. The original Mikrus Gedolus was just Rashi, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, and Onkelos. Uh Slowly but surely, for commercial reasons, they started to add other stuff. The main thing they added was the Orachaim because of the Baal Shemta, but it, it, that sold like wildfire with the Hasidic purchasing public. But the Litvisha put it in the, the Saforno. And uh, it became a, a, a great popular. I don't know if it's popular among the Hasidim. I get the impression not, but I could be wrong about that. But non-Hasidim, the, the, what I would call the Litvisha and the, and the Yakis and so forth, they always liked the Saforno. Because it's very chaste. Uh, as they say, there is, it's a pleasure to read. It's written very clearly, and uh, pretty darn clearly. And uh, it's not long. Okay? So Sforno, you can sort of, you can knock off a Sforno. This one, this one, this one. As opposed to someone else, and go on and on and on. Uh, as I think many know, uh, the Sforno uh, captured the imagination of Rabbi Cooperman, who started the Michalala. I knew him a little bit. And he had a degree in, in Bible from Dublin University. He was an Irish guy. And he and his family uh, spent a lot of time putting out the Saforno. This is, uh, you know, one of three volumes over here, as you can see. And I got that also. Uh, mainly because it was Manukot, but then I realized that the commentary at the bottom from the Kupman is also pretty good if you're interested in that sort of thing. And as a result, I think it's become very popular wherever a Chumash is study, particularly, I would imagine, in the seminaries. Because if you're taking Chumash as a full-time business, and you take it very seriously, you want to be eyeing in it, you get a very intelligent approach that speaks not only in his time, but even later, It's a, you, you're not going to do better than the Sforno. Uh, again, the Hebrew is easy, very well-crafted, and uh, he had home run. So it is interesting, as I said before, that he does have shows and shubas, and he does have commentaries, which is in this, uh, if you're interested in this safer, the Kisvei's Forno, and uh, he has stuff on Hilchus Gittin, and this and that and the other, and even some drushas. But none of that, those are ephemera. Those are never being known except to somebody who was assigned the, the job of writing a bio, you know, for his class assignment or something like that. 
The, he, he wrote one good book that took, that hit the charts. And that, of course, is uh, is his Chumash commentary. Uh, with the Kavanah Satora, you know, with the introduction where he tries to give the symbolism of the Mishkan and things like that, the Chukim. You can see clearly he's addressing the Balabat, the intelligent Balabas of his generation who lives in Italy. Right? Who has questions about you know, the meaning of a lot of this stuff? It's interesting if you notice Forno is they tries to say, you know, the the Mish the uh how's it go? The Arog represents the Talmud Chacham, the wood is the body, he has to be he buys Bichutz with 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 resolved with gold. Um, you know, the Talmud Chacham has to be Tokhu Kabara and all that sort of business. He knew how to weave together, I would say, homiletics into the uh, meaning of the Torah, but in in a, in a not in an overly saccharine way. At least that's the impression it makes on me, and I would say most of uh, most of contemporaries. So, uh, in the end, this foreigner is probably the most known for the average guy out there of the Italian Renaissance rabbis. I can't think of anybody that's more well known. What do people know today about the Maran Padua? You know, the uh, regular Jews. What do people know today about Mordechai Dato or Moshe Provinciali or those type of guys? No, you know, it, it, not. If you're in Charles and Shubis or whatever, this foreign everybody knows. It's interesting, right? This foreign everybody knows. So he hit the home run for Italian Jewry in, in the broad Jewish public uh, and mainly because of the quality of his work. Because as I said before, nobody knows much about him himself. And his life, you know, is not that much to write about. But obviously, the quality of work, uh, you know, propelled him and elevated him. And that's why people are, are, are attracted to it today. And it's uh, kind of timeless. Because when you write on something like that, you write on a well, the, 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 the shot issues don't go away. Every year you come to a Parsha, in almost every Parsha, you're going to have shot questions. Meaning, things that don't, you know... Stim so well. And what you settled for when you were 15 is not necessarily what you're interested in settling on when you're 45 and 55. But you'll never go wrong uh, with this forno. You know, it may not be the first thing that appeals to you or the second one, but it's always very sound. It's always based on common sense. It's always based on a logic. And it's a very from. So uh, because of that, uh, you know, he'll always remain in the charts. Uh, that's pretty good to get into the Mikras Godolas uh, and have a, a permanent place in the Pantheon. As I said, the other stuff he wrote, which is more intellectual, is so out of date that no one will be interested in it. You know, the questions about uh, Aristotelianism and the cosmology and all that is it, it, from the world of has-been. The world of the Torah commentary is never has-been if you do it right. Right? Uh, intellectual trends come and go. Commentary in the Chumash, if it's done well, never comes and goes. It's always relevant. Anyway, that's what I don't want to say. And with that, I want to thank Rabbi Wild and wish everybody a good Shabbos on my end. i got to get ready over here. And uh, that's it. Shabbat Shalom. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.